Life is a mess. It's becoming harder and harder to imagine the world past next Thursday. But imagining the future is the key to creating it. So I want you to join me on the adventure to a better world. To start us off, I wanted to talk to science fiction author Lex Beckett. Their latest, called Game Changer, is all about imagining a future we want to live in. And it's one of my favorite books of the last 10 years. Lex, you're joining me in the middle of a pandemic. Thank you for making the time and headspace to hang out today. Thank you for having me and, and for liking Game Changer so much. That's, uh, that's very gratifying. So let's get everyone on the same page. I would love to hear your elevator pitch for this book. What I really want to do is write a book about the world 100 years from now after we've made it, after we've survived. Um, and the primary thing that we think of as having to survive until recently uh, was climate change. So I think part of what I found so compelling about this story is that it it is in the future. It is not dystopian. It is not utopian. It's just optimistic and fairly practical. I think that's a pretty good definition of my personality, honestly. I don't believe in, in pure utopias, and I don't really believe in pure dystopias. Humans design systems, and sometimes when they're very well thought out and well implemented, we design really great systems. And then over time, those systems erode, and humans who feel disenfranchised by those systems sabotage them. And so they start to work less and less well until you have to replace them. Um, so, so Game Changer is really about a society that replaces our current systems, our economic system, our, our systems of government, um, a lot of our sort of social mores, without becoming unrecognizable. And it's a, it's a society that's been going on just long enough that people are starting to consider whether they want to hack it. We'll, we'll get a little deeper into those systems, because I, I think part of why Game Changer makes sense for me is that you've really gone very deep into the systems thinking that makes your culture and society function uh, in that story. But before we get into that piece, I would love to understand a little bit more about how you developed your lens for imagining the future. What, what is the story behind your ability to do that? For a number of years, I had been somewhat obsessed with and trying to write about an internet shaming. Um, and I, I tried many different short stories, essentially about a reporter who had pushed an interview too far, made himself look really bad, and, and then ended up on the end of a, an internet shitstorm. Um, the sort of thing that happens to people on Facebook and Twitter um, now, but sort of to the nth degree. And after a couple of false starts, I wrote a novella called Freezing Rain, A Chance of Falling um, about, about exactly this. This reporter whose livelihood is tied to how popular he is on the internet and who, when he, he screws up and becomes wildly unpopular, um, he loses his press pass, he, all of his various subscriptions to things, like the subscriptions we have to Apple TV or whatever, uh, the rate you pay for them goes up when you're unpopular. Um, your rent goes up. Hmm. And so suddenly he's basically flat broke and desperate and hated. Um, Was this before or after uh, Milo Yiannopoulos essentially had this exact thing happen to his fucked up circus of hate. <laughs> it was before. Wow. Okay. So, so you essentially predicted the future with this. I did. Although I, I, the, the future was there to be predicted. I, I read a really interesting article before I read this, wrote the story. Um, and the article was about consulting companies that help people rehabilitate their social media profile. So if you were, for example, um, a, the woman who took a, a picture of herself in front of a veteran's memorial, like a shrine to war veterans, uh, giving it the finger and, and found herself vilified on the internet, you, you could go to these companies and say, you know, I don't want this to be the first thing that comes up every single time someone Googles my name. Um, That's a business now. Yeah. Wow. 
I, I guess it has to be, yeah. It has to be, yeah. So I wrote it before Yiannopoulos. I wrote it before China implemented its uh, social capital um, money system, but just before. I kind of mm. cringed. And in that story, and this often happens with, with my works, so I start with short work and it explodes into something much longer, more complicated. Um, I had the I had the basic infrastructure of CloudSight, which is the the social capital regulator. It's basically the bank for your social capital in uh, Game Changer. I had the beginnings of the culture of um, widespread spread buy-in on culture or on uh, carbon remediation. So that character Dro, who is also in the book, mm -hmm. um, you know, his landlord is renting out his backyard for. Uh, carbon growing projects. So he's growing bamboo in the backyard and Dro is getting an offset on his rent by maintaining the greenhouse. And there are some carbon, some fairly heavy carbon costs to luxury activities that, that create a big burn. But it's that story set 15 years from now and all of that is only just starting. And then when I wanted to write Game Changer, I sort of was imagining the generation after that. So Dro is Dro is born into a generation called the setback. Um, the pangs of which we're experiencing as we speak. Yes. My my imagined historical timeline is the setback generation's kids go through a period called the clawback, which is the most violent of those periods. Um, and which eventually results in a literal clawing back of wealth from the super rich. Um and from corporations and the establishment of a different kind of global economy. And then the actual book takes place in the bounce back is a generation of people who are the, the first generation to really see benefits from climate remediation and who, who grow up in a, in a, with a sense of optimism that while the job might be unfinished, it's going to be successfully completed. For right or wrong, they believe it's going to be okay. So Game Changer had a real impact on me because of what you're describing ends up being a sort of cognitive degreaser in that it takes a lot of problems that are very real and, and very current and seem quite intractable at this point. And it kind of projects forward like, all right, this is this is doable. We can figure out ways to do this and it's going to be messy, but ultimately like we could, we could get past this. Who in your, in your history helped you develop the ability to imagine such things in, in terms of stories and storytellers? Like what comes to mind that helped you develop a muscle to make this possible? Ooh, so many. Um, I think some of the, the hardest books I've read in terms of parsing out complicated world building are, are probably Werner Vinge's uh, Fire Upon the Deep and A Deepness in the Sky. Um, and I felt like I read those and I didn't understand anything that had happened. And then I had to sort of go back and dig through all of those. Um, a lot of the individual bits of the book um, were built on the backs of nonfiction writers. Um, a lot of the economics sort of come out of thinking about a book called uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Oh, Graeber, he's fantastic. And his ideas about money and elucidation of flaws in capitalist theory that I hadn't really considered. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also, you know, his, his emphasis on communitarianism, um, which isn't quite what he calls it, but that's, that's what it boils down to. And then um, The Well-Tempered City... Um, by Jonathan Rose was another one. Um, and it, it literally talks about what it's going to take to build cities for um, what's sometimes called the VUCA age. The, the VUCA age? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It, oh, is that what we call the future? That is what we call the future, the VUCA oh. age. It, it means we're going to have problems that move very quickly. <laughs> we all mm -hmm. seeing that happen right now. You've noticed. Where the outcomes are are uncertain, uh, where the solutions are complex, and the decisions we might have to make, even though we will have to make them quickly, we will sometimes not really be able to predict the results until we've we've tried stuff. I did not know that there was such a tidy encapsulation for 
this. I know. I feel like I am the only person who knows this word because I go like, we have a word for this exact thing and I've seen it and it, it's on the internet. So it's not just me and the guy who wrote that one book. What a relief. We, we could stop right now and I feel like we've delivered our value for the day. <laughs> Thank you. You mentioned that we, in your timeline of the future, we're living right now in the setback yes the beginnings of the setback yes and the setback leads to the clawback yes. which is about redistribution yes and that redistribution leads us to the bounce back where we can actually start to rebuild the world uh in a way that we can feel okay with yeah i mean in in any in any historical revolution, we, we know that we, we as, as humans put tidy brackets on when it happened. Sure. And we know as well that, that those aren't really, they're porous boundaries, right? They're fun. Sure. We, we say the Industrial Revolution happened at a certain time, but really it never ended. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about this right now because I've been writing a bunch of short pieces set in the clawback and, and how the clawback bleeds into the bounce back is is something I don't think I would ever be able to set a specific date for. I always sort of imagine that we would go from setback to clawback in a rather rapid fashion after a crisis. Okay. Yes, that's where I want to go. Why? Well, another book I read, um, I read a lot of, I, you could probably tell, I read a lot of pop sociology, mm -hmm. um, is The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg. And the, the power of habit talks about how when you have an entrenched system um, where, especially if the people at the top of the system are, are seeing benefits and not facing consequences for whatever flaws that system may have, it is very difficult to get that system to change until there is a crisis that essentially affects everyone within that system. And the, the example he used for that particular argument was actually a hospital that had accidentally poisoned a number of patients with bad meds. What had happened was the, the consequences of killing a few patients accidentally um, reached all the way up into the doctors. Um, so you have a crisis so big that it can't be ignored. It affects everyone sort of at the various levels of the system. And what generally happens next is regime change, management change, um, good leadership, and an incentive to everyone at all levels of the system to buy into whatever the change was. So this particular hospital, they, you know, broomed out their management. The management brought in newer, more stringent medication protocols. And then they, they did things to make everyone feel like they were included in making a positive change. Um, so I imagine the setback giving way to the clawback. Yes. I'm imagining what's happening to us now. I'm imagining something happening that is so big and impossible to ignore and that affects people who are seen by the entire world to matter. So, so when Tom Hanks gets the coronavirus, for example... That was a breakthrough moment, right? Like we we as a culture were all kind of trying to follow the lead of the elites, which is like this will this will probably be fine. But as soon as Tom Hanks gets it, we all have this weird parasocial relationship with Tom Hanks because he's been in all these movies and we love the movies and now he's affected and suddenly it's real. Yeah, I kind of run with a socially conscious crowd. Uh, people who generally buy into my view of, for example, environmentalism, and and I'll and I'd say, you know, eventually there may be a crisis that is world changing, and they'll say, but this happened and this happened and this happened, and I invariably would say, and now I feel quite bad about it, yeah, but it didn't happen to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and in Game Changer, you imagine that something happens to Manhattan. Yes, yes. Oh, I shouldn't sound so excited about this. Oh my god. It, it's it's not a huge spoiler. It's just part of, of the backdrop of your future. It's one of the clawback disasters. Okay. T tell, tell us an example here that you imagined for what made Manhattan non-viable. So I read this article. <laughs> All of my conversation starts with I read this article about Manhattan's water system. Okay. Manhattan's fresh water comes into the city via two 
massive pipes that were built over a century ago. That's terrifying if you stop right there. Yeah. They are, they are so old that the safety locks in them may or may not work, but they are afraid to test them in case they don't. Can you say more about what a, what a safety lock in such a pipe would do? Um, I have, it's been a while since I read that article too, but I've seen essentially what look like big locks, the big version of the locks you see in say a submarine Mm -hmm. to, to stop water flowing. Um, and I, I believe the idea behind those locks is you, you close up the system, you shut off water to half the island, you do maintenance on the part. I see. Yep. What if there was contamination? You would want to stop the flow of water. So if they needed to make an intervention on the water system, it is not clear if the primary system that would allow that even functions. Right. Or, you know, alternately, if they closed them and couldn't reopen them again. There you go. Or if the water supply failed for any other reason, like they're just old. They, they like any piece of infrastructure they need replacing. And New York has known about this, you know, for decades. And they have had a project going intermittently to replace those two water inflows. I apologize to all engineers everywhere for my inaccurate uh, terminology. Uh, with, a new, with a new pipe, basically, that draws water out of, I think, the Philadelphia watershed and would supply all of Manhattan and would be state-of-the-art um, and really amazing and, and also redundant system to the other two. Um, and sometimes they haven't had funds for it and they've stopped digging for decades. And even if they went all out now, <laughs> like they can't just whip it together suddenly if something goes wrong. It's not an overnight project. It's not an overnight project. And, and the keyword for anyone who wants to Google this is sand hog. Sand hog. Decades of neglected infrastructure. The bill finally comes due. And as a result, Manhattan is non-viable as a metropolis. Exactly. Um, and this just, in the book in that piece of history coincides with the plague breaking out in Boston uh, because plagues are semi-regular events in the setback. Oh, oh goody. Are you sure you're not a time traveler? <laughs> so yeah, New York, New York's water system fails. Um, Boston falls to a plague and all of these, all of these areas, the, the U S um, relies on disasters being localized enough that other States can bail each other out. Mm hmm. I read this today um, because in the Atlantic, um, because that's how it was assumed that the U.S. would deal with a plague outbreak is that it would only happen in a few states and then the other states would have surplus hospital capacity. Did they not know about the the airplane? I I don't know. If you're realistic, it gets expensive, right? I guess so. So you imagine this crisis... You have cascading crises, and yes. what that leads to is that there is no amount of elite protection which can insulate you from these crises. And that leads us to a clawing back because... I would have said until a couple of weeks ago that that part of the book was wildly optimistic. Mm -hmm. The idea that anyone would seriously consider... Um, taking money from the rich um, for any reason didn't seem very practical. And then, and then the only other politician in the U.S. whose name I know, Elizabeth Warren, started talking about a wealth tax. Yes. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, but then I thought, well, yeah, but she's not going to get very far if that's her platform. Um, and now, of course, we are looking at governments legislating something that looks shockingly close to universal basic income for the short term. They're flirting, right? They're not, they're not full-on French kissing yet, but there's been a little bit of tongue. Um, and I'm like, what now? Wait, what now? Uh, because Game Changer is also a universal basic income future. So the clawback happens not necessarily because of violence enacted you know, French Revolution style with guillotines and, and all of that good stuff. 
the violence happens because of elite incompetence, essentially, and the bill coming due for that, and everyone has to pay it, including the elites. And that leads us to the consensus? It's unevenly distributed. The clawback is unevenly distributed. Sure. Um, this, these, are the, these are the stories I'm writing now, and, and I'm, I'm writing a lot of stories um, set in a period where, where many billionaires and trillionaires can sort of see the writing on the wall and they're, they're doing things like trying to move to countries that they think won't confiscate their wealth at a government level, mm -hmm. and they're also engaging in mega philanthropy. Hey, you know, I, Jeff Bezos, for example, will move to this part of Canada and create a massive climate remediation slash infrastructure jobs program um, but, you know, please let me keep writing my own checks. Right. So there's a bit of that going around. They're basically maneuvering for position to see if they can sort of ride it out. Right. Um, as, as the super wealthy wrote out, for example, the Great Depression, right? Sounds plausible. The wealth inequality wasn't as, believe it or not, as amazingly unequal as it is now. It, it, it's hard to fathom the level of distortion that we just live in every day as far as wealth inequality goes. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. Because you, you can go back all the way to, you know, like a people's history of the United States and see in the 1600s that we still had this problem. But the amount of wealth that can exist today really doesn't have a lot of precedent in, in the 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 unequal distribution of it like we can't really fit it into our brains no no you need you need concrete so like, so when someone so when someone tells me the bill and melinda gates foundation decided to eliminate malaria and in india and just did it or not yeah. malaria sorry polio they can do that and you're like more power to them i love that um but they shouldn't have to, right? Um, it, it, it shouldn't be possible for them to take on a project as individuals of that scope. Yeah, it shouldn't be possible. It shouldn't be necessary. Right. I, I give a, a little monthly thing to uh, John Green and Hank Green Project uh, for Partners in Health. Um, what and do they, they are do? Building, they are building healthcare infrastructure in Kona, which is the poorest region of Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Um, where basically the, the maternal death rate and the infant death rate from childhood childbirth is, is horrifying. And it's all stuff that most countries can prevent, you know, with one hand tied behind their back. Um, and it costs so little of my admittedly modest income to do that because, again, things are so unequal. Um, the same charitable donation, if I gave it to anything in Canada, would go nowhere as far. But but the extreme inequality between the industrialized West and these parts of Africa that are in desperate need lets you have that leverage. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and I get an email from them every month saying, you know, here are actual people who didn't die of cancer because they can now have chemo drugs. Wow. Um, which they just couldn't before. Right. The drugs were around, but they couldn't get them. Everything we've been talking about so far feels like a symptom of uh, a, a fetish, an obsession in the West with individualism mm -hmm. and enshrining the rights of the individual, you know, to in some cases just run off with literally as much cash <laughs> as they can get away with, right? And yeah. meanwhile, to to put in no mechanisms to make sure that the community as a whole is is healthy. And and I feel like that is we we see that through this pandemic really being demonstrated in in some fairly dramatic ways. Is this something we can overcome to reach a more optimistic future? I I think it may be one of those things that always has to be reset that that as as people and as cultures we want freedom we want the ability to be individuals um we don't want to be so collectivist that we're 
in our neighbor's laps all the time in various ways. Um, but even if we strike a good balance, outliers on both ends sort of start pulling, pulling on the social fabric and it, it mutates and then, and then it needs, you know, a reassessment. But that too might be a very individualistic way of looking at it. Um, I mean, I grew up in this culture and I, I've certainly felt that pull over the last few days. Well, I almost certainly don't have the coronavirus. So, you know, it's not a big deal if I go out and hit three stores in a row. Um, there's that, that impulse, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it is very much that I, 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 I don't want to be inconvenienced. My life is so easy. I like it easy. Easy is great. Um, but, you know, as, as we're looking at cultural curves, um, one of the countries that's got one of the best, you know, looking curves right now for coronavirus is Japan, which is thought of as oh, being yes. a very conformist culture. And, you know, the what's being put out there, I don't understand the nuances of this, like I haven't researched it, but it's basically, you know, this is a culture where when the government says stay home, people friggin' stay home. Have you been to Japan? I have not. I'll give you, for me, what was one of the most striking things about Japan for me on a recent visit. I was in the subway, um, and, and, and the subways alone of, of Japan are... Japan is like taking a trip to the future. You, you can go on vacation cool. like 20 to 50 years into the future if you can rustle up the cash to go to Japan. And inside the subway station, there was a sink with a drinking fountain. Uh-huh. And this is such a mundane utility to have in the subway. But anyone could go up there and they could refill a bottle of water out of this drinking fountain or, or otherwise use the sink. It was just there, available to people. And, you know, in in the United States, where I am, uh, the, the subway w won't even give you a bathroom to use, much less a sink for drinking water. And odds are, if it was available, it would be pretty skanky. Right. Yeah, th this thing was... You, you would eat out of this, this sink. It looked so nice. And so... It's really interesting how the differences in individualist versus more community-centric cultures lead to outcomes. And and I don't I don't want to portray Japan by the way as as some sort of utopia. I mean, but I I guess I guess that's all a way of saying like how is, is there a way to migrate closer to that extreme? And away from the extreme of like the Connecticut suburbs that really didn't want a coronavirus testing facility down the street from them. I I think studies show that that big crises do have more potential to disrupt sacred cows and and you know assumed values than than you know business as usual. Mm -hmm. And and I think. I would like to think that a lot of people will take as the lesson from this crisis um, that we are all in this together. Like people are saying that, at least they're saying it in Canada. I don't know what they're saying in the US. Um, there will always be people who won't buy in, but we know that when the core of society is sort of, I don't want to say paying lip service, when something becomes a central value in society, even if everyone doesn't buy in, um, consensus. Yeah, a certain amount of consensus. It, it has a lot of social power. What I would hope is that people start to realize in the cultures where it's been a little bit more, I can do my own thing no matter what, that, that there is a bit of a looking outward and a, a sense that even if you don't necessarily care that much about your, your fellow human beings who you don't know in the abstract, and you know, there are people like that, and that's fine. Um, but that they understand that their well-being is your well-being. Right. Right. So I'm hoping we move a little closer to that idea collectively in uh, U.S., Canada, and U.K. specifically, because those yeah. are the three countries I sort of know best. And it, it turns out, oh, shit, we all have the same biology. Yeah. Shocking. <laughs> what are we going to do? What comes out for me in all of this is that 
I, I think it's very plausible that what you are describing is how it works. Essentially, you're talking about crises injecting energy into all of our human systems and that energy being used to transform those systems. And it certainly, it, it makes sense in the abstract. It certainly makes sense in the midst of a pandemic. But one of the things that you point out is that this isn't free and it's not even cheap. Yeah, no. People living through this time period, even before we got to the pandemic, in your view, in the future, will recognize some shared PTSD from all yes. of this. Yes. And I wonder if that's something that you already see in your communities since, you know, right-wing nationalism has has really been on the march over the last few years. Yes. You know, I my core community is uh, arty and queer. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true on the ground here in Toronto. Um, and it's true in the writing communities that I inhabit on the internet. Um, and because as queers, we've always been vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, a, a shocking number of the people I know do have PTSD or are CPTSD. Um, I actually have uh, have PTSD for for non-queer reasons. I saw a plane crash in my backyard when I was six. That'll do it. Yeah. And uh but I I I've realized how prevalent it is among among my cohort. Um because because it's more openly talked about now. It's less stigmatized. Yes. Um there was actually a panel on mental illness in writers at last year's might have been Worldcon, might have been Nebulas. And there were, you know, four people I know well sitting up on a panel talking about things like trauma disorders. PTSD is also a thing in Game Changer because Drogue catches it, as it were, in the novella I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Something very traumatic happens to him. Um, and he actually has an offshoot of it called Virtual Traumatic Distress Disorder, um, which is when you are traumatized by something that happens to you in VR. Mm -hmm. Um with accompanying inability to deal with reality on both levels in some cases. So there's no escapism for VR for such a person. I mean, you're, you're not supposed to design traumatic uh, scenarios in VR and, and, but you know, he gets victimized. Humans being humans. Humans being humans. But yeah, I mean, you can see how, how what's happening now is going to leave a mark on the psyches of everyone going through it. I think part of the upside, such as any is, to this pervasive PTSD is that there is better language for discussing it. There is better precedent and stomach for discussing it. There's a consensus that this is a, a topic that has a broad impact rather than something to be ashamed of. I hope so. Do you imagine that as time goes on, we come up with better ways to address this very human, very common situation. Something, something that we, uh, we talk about a little bit in the uh, intersectional feminist community is that you know, we, we've been making a, a significant effort to diversify inclusion of people of color and women and queers and people with disabilities into, into the fold of activism and, and access to the world. But somehow people with disabilities, and that includes people with mental illness, mm -hmm. uh, still often come at the back of the line. Um, and I, I did try to preserve an element of that in Game Changer. Dro is doing pretty well in life, uh, but what little privilege still exists in that world, he has all of it. You know, he's... he's in late life, he becomes fairly famous. He is well-respected for his music. He qualifies for a trauma dog. Um, all the social capital. Yeah, all the social capital. And, um, yeah, he gets back. If you, if, you read the book, if you read the novella and you feel really bad for him, his life gets a lot better, everyone, um, by the time he's 80. Um, Yet he's still struggling. 
yeah, he's still struggling. And he's also giving back, right? He works as a, a peer counselor to other people with troubles. But he, he comes into a, a client who's who seems to be profoundly disconnected from society. And that guy's having enormous trouble. Um, and as his daughter Ruby moves through her portion of the novel, she, she encounters um, people who can't easily access the sensorium, which is the virtual future internet. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're still using screens because they're, they're intolerant to surgical augments. Um, and they are still excluded from certain perks of society um, because it's just too much work for them and it's incumbent on them as we put things on people with disabilities, right? Um, for them to solve their own problems without, without any kind of assistance sometimes. Um, so I, I, I kind of wanted to keep that, that layer of this is the thing we might do last. Right. Um, and I do see both the, the setback and the clawback as being periods potentially devastating to our disabled communities. And I, I think part of what makes, your story compelling by avoiding utopianism is that in in doing that you're able to provide a more a, a deeper critique of the places where we are still not where we need to be and by imagining a future where we're still fucking that up <laughs> right and, yes. and and letting us look at that and say really we we, we really can't figure that out even then I, I think that I want that to light a fire under the reader to say, well, when are we going to start? I guess we should start now. Yeah. Yeah. I, human history will always be a story of the thing we were doing really well at the same time as the thing that we are fucking up tragically. <laughs> but I, I want my readers to have the opportunity to imagine that we are not going to flame out now in a big fucking up tragically on a on a species ending scale. I want them to imagine there's a future worth having. You have imagined trade-offs because you mentioned that this is a universal basic income type future. So everyone is able to meet their basic needs. But part of how we accomplish that is it, it sounds like not everyone has, most people are not using brand new stuff. We're not getting a new iPhone every 14 months, right? No. Some of the consumer electronics market has just vanished under the weight of of VR augments. So you don't need it necessarily. You don't. You get your surgery when you're in your teens, uh, which is also when you are sterilized, um, and then you you have access unless you're intolerant, in which case you go using screens, which is what you've been doing as a pre adolescent anyway. Right. You get software updates as you need them and you subscribe to the things you want. So, so much of what you quote unquote own in, in this future is virtual property. You have a media library, you have a virtual home, you have, you know, your favorite apps. Um, it's, it's the fully realized version of the world we're trying to build for ourselves now um, on the internet. The sort of rich, globally available information culture. So because you are so attached to a digital world, an economy can actually exist built on non-scarce information resources. Yes. And so as a result of that, we don't need to do the same level of aggressive planets destroying consumer electronics manufacture and shipping yeah it's i mean the server farms are still immense sure um but you generally you will own nothing except a couple very precious items that you can carry around with you or if you if you for some reason are incredibly attached to a physical thing that can't be carried around with you you will you will seek an outlier lifestyle of some kind that will let you have a permanent home and a place to put it. Um, you you have virtual properties. You can live in the same apartment for as long as you want, but the minute you get a job somewhere else, you can move. You can just physically relocate to someplace closer to that job 
and move into a different pop-in apartment right there. And all of your virtual stuff, your virtual wallpaper that shows up on your augmented view of your house um, follows you. Your, your food delivery follows you. Um, your, your wardrobe is basically licensed printed clothes that are designed to wear three or four times and then recycle. The fastest fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone, everyone does have um, a nanotech primer garment. It's, it's sort of the, the expensive thing that everyone has, but it's, it's part of your, your universal basic package is everyone has enough primer um, to, to basically wear the Star Trek onesie under <laughs> printed clothes. Um, the idea is exactly what you're talking about. They, we, we give you really great bread and circuses on the internet. Please stop owning stuff. And this seems like an entirely reasonable trade-off once the fidelity is high enough. I think so. I mean, I I used to play Asheron's Call and I had a cabin. Um and I paid a mortgage on it. Just like I paid a mortgage on my actual condominium. And um and I was in a an allegiance that had a castle and I paid part of mortgage on the castle. Um and those things were valuable to me. Um and they didn't exist. That, that was a moment in history, huh? I, I had a similar experience in Second Life where the investment in this thing that only existed in the ether, it, it still mattered. So that was, that was part of what was so compelling to me. is like once that's deep enough into your brain to them, I can see this working. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I lavish a lot of attention in the book on uh, the first time Ruby wakes up in her lavish bedroom in her sort of Versailles-branded French uh, via. Yes. Um, she's got some licensed Vigée Lebrun portraits, and, you know, it's got all the gold and all the gilt because that's kind of what she likes. Um, and, and yet she's in Paris for the first time in her life. Like, she's had this sort of... Gallophilic, would that be the right word? She's had this crush on the idea of Paris her whole life, and she's been gaming in Paris her whole mm -hmm. life and hanging out there in VR, and she's never physically been there until the book starts. And in that, that scene, you fairly well predict another aspect of our future, which is a lot of us just hanging out digitally. Mm -hmm. We need connection, and you've got your characters who are spread around the world, who are all interacting with one another in what feels like a single place but they're they're just all in the ether has it been gratifying to see the kind of explosion of that sort of socialization the last couple of weeks <laughs> yes although I, I i do want it to be as seamless and frictionless as in my book where it just you know people come to your virtual house and they've got their virtual avatar. And if you have Versailles, they probably dress up like, you know, pre-revolutionary France people. Zoom Zoom does leave a lot to be desired these days. I, I just realized I'm, I'm, I'm in a Zoom meeting with a bunch of my buds um, through the day right now. The, yeah. The things we've been doing. <laughs> I'm sitting here. I'm talking to you every now and then. I'm like rubbing my nose because my nose itches. I'm like, oh fuck i'm on camera people are watching me <laughs> so i just i just went and shut off the camera so that people wouldn't have to watch me yammering into a mic that they couldn't hear ruby goes off to paris but she has a couple visits with her father while he's still in toronto um and frequently over the course of a chapter characters basically surf out of reality and off to another website um and and making that Making that not overly confusing was, was something I had to put a, a good deal of effort into. I, th I think whatever work needs to happen to make that work on the reader side for what it's worth, I think there's a lot of value to it in that learning how to imagine that is preparatory for an inevitable future. I, I hope it's it's a useful thought experiment and and I think you're right that the fact that we are all virtually visiting with each other more now and people who hadn't ever done it before um, because they they didn't feel comfortable with the technology or they weren't interested um, 
are going to become more acquainted with it. And then, of course, it'll transition into pop culture stuff more. Um, I could easily imagine that the next crop of TV shows after this, you have a lot more of sort of sensate without the telepathy kind of stories, maybe. Well, hey, have you seen much Broad City? No. So, so in Broad City, you've got these two young women living in New York who are frequently getting stoned with one another over FaceTime. <laughs> oh, nice. And it's just it's just part of the story, and, and they make it work. And it's actually getting a lot of references right now because it's like, hey, this, this is how you practice social distancing while still maintaining connections with your friends. <laughs> getting stoned on FaceTime. Excellent. I will tell my mother. <laughs> as far as the platforms where we're doing our, our socializing, your future politics are really heavily, almost entirely mediated by digital platforms and of course we've got our own digital social platforms these days i feel like there's a big chasm between the kind of stuff that you imagine that seems to be quasi community property versus what we have today where you've got a twitter or a facebook which is owned by a massive corporation that really only cares about selling ads and that doesn't really care about our civic needs. How do you how do you imagine the transition from one form of platform to another? There's comparatively little on the page in Game Changer about it. There's um there's a point where Dro and Luce uh, end up in a college lecture about the the collapse of the original internet. And- I love that scene. Oh, thank you. Um, I was I was afraid that everyone in the world was going to tell me to cut it, so I, I worked to make it really readable. It's terrific exposition in that you really get a lot about the story, and it feels like almost a a crystal ball predicting the future at the same time. So it, it really <laughs> pays rent for whatever it's worth. <laughs> Anyway, in the in the college lecture that they're attending, and Luce is like, I can't listen to this again. Oh my god! The professor says something about the the collapse of the original honor shame honor yes. slash shame culture of the internet, um, which is these internet shamings I'm talking about. The extent to which I've imagined the transition is is something along the lines of, again, this this pressure from governments to directly to billionaires saying, sort it out, as a first step. Mm-hmm. Um, what I what I imagine happening to capitalism would would eventually just sweep up those media companies. Advertisers are kind of the lowest of the low in my universe. Like you have to be have a really bad cloud site right. rating to have ad supported stuff. And there just isn't this culture where if you go outside, it's hard to look in any direction without seeing an advertisement like that's gone Mm -hmm. um, because everyone's paying at least enough of a premium to to avoid it and they can be wallpapered out so why would they would they cover our bus shelters and these things what what eventually sweeps them up and and i didn't want to write a massive textbook on economic theory so i tried not to go too heavy on (laughs) it is that um corporations get um taken over they get turned into what we call crown corporations here in Canada. Um, and as globalization sort of intensifies, um, one, of the, one of the systems that gets put in place as a means of trying to police some of the worst corporate behaviors is called triage. And the idea is that in each sector every year, there's sort of a evaluation of all of the companies providing a particular good or service and if any of them is found to be not operating for the social good or simply operating poorly, the, the, the guy at the bottom of the herd might literally be dissolved, broken up, and given to the other crown corporations to sort out. So it's like Wikipedia meets the Federal Trade Commission. Yes, with a, with a little whiff of uh, old-style Greek democratic awesome. <laughs> okay. And there's, there's a pharmaceutical company in the book that it's mentioned that that company got triaged for 
for basically losing some of its age extension drugs, losing in quotes, mm-hmm. um, and clearly had been up to some kind of black market bullshit. Right. Um, so they just got wiped from the face of the earth and their, their assets given to their competitors. So, so a corporate death penalty yeah. is central to how you imagine reforming our worst capitalist impulses. Corporations may think they are people. Right. But they don't think because they're only made of people. And yeah, I mean, who better than companies to have to live under that kind of threat? Mm-hmm. Not all of the systems in, in the book are necessarily completely laced with compassion. Sure. Um, well, and, and not, not everything in this continuum necessarily needs it. And, you know, profiteering, corrupt corporations, I don't, I don't think they need a hug. Right. I, I kind of don't either. I mean, I, I want I want in very much in theory to to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but I have a little trouble with, as you say, profiteering and extravagant attempts to take advantage of human suffering. That's timely. Well, speaking of compassion, I think the the far opposite end of of your point of view here. I found this really compelling, and I don't know if I'm not reading the right fiction or anything, but it also felt incredibly fresh. You imagine a future bureaucracy where kids are involved in investigation and, uh, and litigation of malfeasance. Yes. Uh, in the bounce back, there is what's called the Bureau of Pre-Adolescent Affairs. And they're, they're a fairly important government department. And the underlying concept is the political decisions we make today in the VUCA age very rapidly without knowing their consequences <laughs> are going to be borne by young people for longer than anyone else. Yes. Um, and I think the seed of this probably came when um, someone was telling me they saw Jared Diamond giving a, a talk once. Mm-hmm. And when, it, when he got to the Q&A, he didn't let anyone over the age of 25 ask a question. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So this might be apocryphal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the thinking was like, all y'all boomers shut up. Even if you're 40, like, No. It's the 25-year-olds who are facing all this stuff I'm writing about. Let them ask me the questions. Um, And I thought, yeah, like, whatever happens in the world over the next few decades, like, I can realistically imagine that I'm out in 20 to 30 to 40 at most years. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got a niece who's 13, right? I teach 20-year-olds creative writing. Um. It's their future we're dicking with. So do you feel like your relationship to young people is, is part of what allowed you to, to imagine our whole culture centering their needs like this? Partly. I mean, part of it is I, I felt very disenfranchised as a young person. And I've, yeah. there's always been an element in my writing of um, adults make decisions and the young people in their path just have to basically cope with them. Um, I have a short story um, published quite a few years ago called The Children of Port Elaine, where a, a town that had lost its lumber mill decided to basically set itself up as a place where convicted pedophiles could go after they'd served their prison sentences. Wow. And it's about the kids who have to live in this town who have basically made a crown-funded industry out of parole for sexual predators. Um, but the, the message that's, a, I mean, it was meant to be kind of a bracing story, but the message is like, you know, when you're six, you don't get to choose whether mom and dad are living downstream from the pulp mill. Right. Um, and, and maybe you shouldn't necessarily have that power, but in this, in this society, there's at least some attempt to give kids a bit of a say, um, and essentially to give them the swing vote on some of these ambiguous choices. Just at face value, it makes sense to me to give young people that input. But I think what you've clarified here for me that sells it even more 
is the fact that it is this VUCA context where our decisions can metastasize so quickly. And in that particular context, we really do seem to owe young people more than historically we have given them. We're in a unique point in history in that life, life expectancy has never been this long. Um, and it's decreasing. Average global life expectancy is decreasing. But, but we've lived in this golden age where people get in some countries to live 90 plus years. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a marvelous thing if your rent's paid and you have enough to eat and you have access to the kind of medical care that makes the downsides of old age, you know, less horrifying. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no guarantees and you could be the person who lives to be 90 and have the last four years of that be terrible. Um, and never have we been in an age where that might be more of a prospect for more people. Especially the youngest. Yeah. I, I can't imagine how brave a person must be to have a kid now. I have this I have this conversation a lot that especially that topic like because I, I I think at the end of the day what a thing to to saddle that young person with. As a Gen Xer I've, I've certainly been aware of all of the resources the boomers have spent that I will not necessarily be able to access myself mm -hmm. and then as I've, I've become older and more financially comfortable I've been able to see you know the cost looking back at the next generations um, and because I do teach 20 year olds it's I'm always looking at them and thinking okay what is your future what are where are you going to be in 20 years and and it it's it's just so interesting but also sometimes scary well the the, the scary part is real so I think I think what I would love to end with as as we wrap this up is you've clearly developed a lot of of instincts and muscles around grappling with this uncertain rapidly changing future and you nonetheless have managed to find a hopeful point of view on it. And so if you had to offer advice to those who are struggling right now to imagine a future beyond next Thursday, uh, what's that advice? Okay, well, I'm, I'm pretty confident we're going to get to Thursday. All right. Um, I mean, today's Wednesday, so. Fingers crossed. The best thing anyone can do right now is follow healthcare officials and government guidelines about stopping the pandemic, um, reducing the harm, whatever they say it takes, if you can do it, do it. But looking beyond that, whatever lens you're able to look at the world through, whether it's the headlines on Twitter or you're reading the BBC once a day, when you see something that speaks to the future you want, like governments cutting universal basic income checks for one month. Figure out who your elected representatives are, if you have any. Write them. Say, go you, do this forever. Um, now is a time when we need to be engaging with democracy and telling our leaders like, we don't want the status quo if this is what the status quo is going to get us. Um, if, if there is going to be energy arising out of this crisis, and if there's going to be positive change, it needs to be powered by demands for positive change. In addition to that, do you have any homework you would like to assign for those listening? We've got, got some folks who've got some spare time these days. Well, if you've already read Game Changer, yes, but you haven't read Sarah Pinsker's Song for a New Day, um, I would start there because what do we get there sarah pinsker's song for a new day is sort of a social distancing book okay wow it's about a near future where nobody gathers in groups bigger than five <laughs> that sounds incredibly relevant yes <laughs> isn't it isn't it um 
and it's a little bit older, but I would also recommend Amberlow by Lara Elena Donnelly, which is about uh, democracy getting swept up in a fascist um, revolution. Wow. And then taking their country back. All right. Lex Beckett, this is at once exactly what I hoped for and so much more than I could have asked for. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang today. I know that we've all got cognitive scarcity right now as we deal with everything coming in through our feeds. I really appreciate you hanging out. I, I really enjoyed a chance to talk about all these things that are in my head and um, and about the book and about the way we can we can have a future. That's that, that's what we need to hear right now. Well, uh, I I wish you happy social distancing and uh, <laughs> thank you. You too. And that's Lex Beckett. Their book, Game Changer, as well as the wealth of articles and recommendations and book tips they have offered during our conversation is going to be in the show notes. Thank you so much for making time to listen. Thank you for imagining a future and for coming with me on the adventure to a better world. You're listening to The Motive by Elsian, kindly provided under license by the artists. Take care of yourself. I'll check in soon. You only said to me.